This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're continuing our conversation about angels in America, this time focusing on the play's vision of healing and reconciliation. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. And hi, listeners. It's so great to be back with you, listeners, and you too, Jennifer. Yeah, likewise. I really liked talking with you last time about Angels in America. That was such a fun conversation. That was fun. I know. We had yeah. a hard time wrapping that one up. Was... <laughs> I know. We went on and on. Mm. Uh, especially, I, I loved talking about the vision of heaven as mm-hmm. a multi-ethnic, completely inclusive democracy. Yes. Today, let's talk about how the play portrays healing and reconciliation. Listeners, I'll mention that the final scene of the play takes place in Central Park in New York at the Bethesda Fountain. And the character Lewis tells the story of the angel Bethesda in Jewish tradition in that last scene. Jennifer, do you want to say anything about the place name Bethesda, and then would you like to read? Sure, sure. Well, listeners, we were having a conversation about Bethesda and the pool at Bethesda and going on and on, and and I'm sitting here thinking, but I think in the Newer Testament, it's Bethsaida. And so Jean and I did have this conversation where, yes, right, we have ancient languages that end up being not manipulated, but they end up taking different forms. Words or names end up taking different forms over time or in one tradition to another. So if you're familiar with John 5 and the pool at Bethsaida, that's the same thing. It's the same context. It's the same story. But in one tradition, it's the pool at Bethesda. And in another tradition, it's the pool at Bethsaida. Welcome to the joy of ancient languages. <laughs> we do that too. Bethesda, Bethsaida. Yeah, we kind of do yeah. that in our own contexts from time to time, perhaps without sure. being aware of it. So, yeah, there's the story. In France, Illinois is Illinois. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't never know where they're talking about. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Sorry. I'm being silly. Back to Angels in America. Indeed. Indeed. So we have this story. Right. Should I read the first, that opening idea, what Lewis is telling us? 
That'd be lovely. Well, he says, Bethesda was this angel. She landed in the temple square in Jerusalem in the days of the second temple. Right in the middle of a working day, she descended and her foot just touched the earth. And where it did, a fountain shot up from the ground. When the Romans destroyed the temple, the fountain of Bethesda ran dry. Thank you so much for that. So that's the Jewish legend that the storyteller in Gospel of John is working with. So later on, when we get to John 5, we will know that it's um, working with this particular Jewish story. Right. Why don't we read the rest of the scene, since I think it really expresses what the animating purpose of the play is, to bless the audience and to conjure up a vision of healing for America. This is an angel of America. Why is that? Because America needs healing, I will say. The purpose of the play is to bless the audience and to conjure this vision of healing for America and for the communities in America that suffer tremendous pain. The gay community, the black community, indigenous communities, communities of women. I'm not saying anyone is without pain, but American culture is really hard on these groups. And this play is very concerned about that. So what do you think, Jennifer? Shall we read the whole thing? And I I like the way you said that. This play is concerned about those issues. So yes, let's, let's continue with the scene. So listeners, I'm going to read Pryor and Belize, and Jennifer will read Lewis and Hannah. So I'll start. So right after Lewis tells the story of the angel of Bethesda, Pryor says, and Belize will tell you about the nature of the fountain before its flowing stopped. Belize, if anyone who was suffering in the body or the spirit walked through the waters of the fountain of Bethesda, they would be healed, washed, clean of pain, prior. They know this because I've told them many times. Hannah here told it to me. She also told me this. Hannah, when the millennium comes, not the year 2000, but the capital M millennium. Right, right. The fountain of Bethesda will flow again. And I told him I would personally take him there to bathe. We will all bathe ourselves clean. And then Pryor says, and this is the final Mm -hmm. soliloquy of the play. I'm almost done. The fountain's not flowing now. They turn it off in the winter, ice in the pipes. But in the summer, it's a sight to see. I want to be around to see it. I plan to be. I hope to be. This disease will be the end of many of us, but not nearly all. And the dead will be commemorated and will struggle on with the living. And we are not going away. We won't die secret deaths anymore. The world only spins forward. We will be citizens. The time has come. By now, you are fabulous creatures. 
each and every one. And I bless you. More life. The great work begins. Yeah, that's such a powerful way to wrap up this beautiful, beautiful play. More life. <laughs> yeah, and Pryor literally has more life yes. because his AIDS is in remission. The medicine mm -hmm. is working. And he asks the angel, always in this play, there's something personal going on and there is some larger dynamic that the personal dynamics are reflecting. So Pryor asks the angel for more life. And at a certain point, they wrestle, which people who are familiar with the Jacob story know that Jacob wrestles an angel. Pryor doesn't know what the heck to do with the angel. She freaks him out. But Hannah is there and knows the Bible very well. And Hannah says, you have to grab him, <laughs> wrestle him, and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. <laughs> and so the, 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 that's what he does. He grabs the angel and, the, and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the angel blesses him, and he gets more life, literally. literally. Yeah. And there's a playful nod to one of them gets their hip hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the wrestling. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. Pryor does. And... I also want to point mm -hmm. out who is mm -hmm. gathered at the Bethesda Fountain at the scene here. So, yes, they are individual characters. We have mm -hmm. Hannah, Pryor, Lewis, and Belize. Lewis has abandoned Pryor in Pryor's moment of need. We talked about heaven being messy. Mm -hmm. In the last episode, and human life being very messy, and human right. bodies being right. very messy, and good heavens, like, disease is so messy. That's right. when our bodies are at their <laughs> messiest, sex and disease. Yep. And, uh, to, you know, two things that really freak people out. So, Lewis, I mean, Pryor is a mess in his illness, and Lewis can't deal with it, and he leaves. And I mean, that, that's pretty terrible. But here they are. Pryor has forgiven Lewis for that. But just as friends at this point. Not just as, as lovers. Friends. Yeah, they, they, yeah. They, they do not reconnect right. as right. lovers. Yeah, they are friends. And Hannah, so when Hannah's son comes out to her, do you remember that scene? I do. I'm not sure which piece you're referring to. Well, he calls um, her from the park. Joe comes, <laughs> yeah, well, Joe comes out to Hannah and says, I'm gay. I'm homosexual. And Hannah says, no, you're not. <laughs> right. So yeah. go home and go to she, bed. Yeah. Take two aspirin and right. call me in the morning. <laughs> so she cannot. She doesn't accept him. But actually, she, she does. grows yeah. so much. Yeah. I mean, her love for her son just overpowers her prejudice against right. gay people. She comes to New York to take care of Harper and to see what on earth is going on. She just follows that impulse to care for. Also, I think this is key. She seeks to understand. And that she is does. all we can do, right? When we're in a place where we don't understand, you know, something is challenging us. The, the, you know, we can shut down and reject it or we can open up and say, help me understand. 
And that I love that about her and her character, that she, she is true to her upbringing. She's true to her religious formation. But in the midst of that, she's also open to understanding. And she seeks to understand. It's not just by default. She seeks to understand. And, I, and that does lead to what is the most striking. I don't know. I, I think it's really fascinating that she ends up being this friend, in a sense, to Pryor. So her, yes, yeah, her son's lover's ex, however you want to think about that. But she yeah. shows up and she just cares and is present. And I think that is what, that is love, right? That is love. It is mm-hmm. love. And there's a, a dance studio nearby and my, my son is a dancer and they have a sign in the dance studio and the sign says, life begins at the end of your comfort mm-hmm. zone. And Hannah goes right out of her comfort yep. zone. So she's caring for a gay man who's dying. She's caring for this woman who has, she's in a psychiatric crisis. She sells her house. She leaves Utah. She comes to New York City. So she's way out of her comfort zone. And like you said, working to understand and really taking on the action of love, which is, which is caring and going outside our comfort yes. zone. I think that's about what yeah. it is. Um, so, so they're there. And then I also want to point out that there are these interpersonal healings that are taking place. Yeah. Hannah is coming to see gay men <laughs> in a way that earlier she was unprepared to see this aspect of her son, but she is seeing gay men and being with gay men. And Pryor and Lewis are able to be with one another. So there is a lot of interpersonal healing. And at the same time, they represent groups that in the culture, you know, the culture frequently creates this division, right? right? Gay people and super religious people, uh, black people, and Anglo-Saxon people. Pryor is Anglo-Saxon. and Hannah is Anglo-Saxon. Hannah's Anglo-Saxon. And Lewis is Jewish. And Belize is Black. <laughs> um, so they are kind of bonded together in love. And this is the, the picture yep. at, in, in that final scene. You know, I also yeah. wanted to comment on how Obviously, the theme of particular religious convictions and beliefs plays throughout this, is, is present throughout this play. Um, but one of the things that strikes me is, is the issue of Lewis, who, as you've said, had a hard time accepting his lover's physical uh, deterioration and being present with him for that. And he does come around eventually to, to realizing that's kind of a crappy way to be as a human being. But he also is a man who has been taught to think about life through the lens of the rules. And there's a conversation early on about what is God? And they're just jumping right into it, right? And, and Lewis says that God is justice. Or is it the other way around? Justice is God. I guess it's actually the other way around because they're talking about the law and justice. What is it? It is God. It is beyond us. It is these things. And there's a commitment to the ideals or the ideas of the rule and the law that I firmly believe can keep us from just appreciating the real humanness of our experience and the messiness of it and being 
uncomfortable with the messiness can be, you know, kind of compounded by a focus on the ideas, right? Instead of an appreciation of the the messiness of being embodied. Yes. So. Yes. Um, yeah, you said that very well. Hey, listeners, right now, we're going to hear a message from our sponsors, and then we're going to be right back with some more conversation about healing and angels. Stay tuned. So, Jennifer, there's this Tony Kushner scholar. Her name is Ayla Nutu, and she connects the Bethesda fountain scene to the Bethesda pool scene in John chapter 5. I was thinking we could read that scene and then connect it back to angels yeah. in America. Yeah, let's do that. Should Absolutely. We do that? I like All it. All right. Would you like to read? You know that I like to read. <laughs> I know you like to read. And I like to hear okay. <laughs> you read, so why don't okay, you read? let's do that. Thanks. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and it is about 15 verses, and I think, think I'm going to read most of it. So there was, after this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in the Hebrew, Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many ill, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? Ill man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and... While I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. Once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Thank you for that. Yeah. I was about to move the conversation directly back to the closing scene of Angels in America, but honestly, when you were reading, I thought, how very interesting. I, I, when I was preparing, I wasn't thinking of emphasizing this part of the story, but you just were talking about the idea of God and justice, God and the law. And I th just think it's really interesting. It's an interesting coincidence that one of the things, in addition to the theme of healing, yeah. which I do want to get back to, one of the things that this story is really exploring 
is the idea of the law. Yes, there's, yes. I, and I, I do want to acknowledge there, there's, I think, this kind of negative connotation about Jews going on in this story. It's like the, the Jews are the ones who are really concerned with the law. But goodness gracious, so many Christians are so unbelievably legalistic. I mean, I know this from experience. Right. So I do just want to say up front that being overly concerned with rules is something that affects all religious yes, people. Yes, a lot. Anybody could be taking that position. Yes. Yes, anybody really could. But this idea, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful right. for you to carry your mat. It's like, well, I won't go on, but I just thought it no. was interesting because you were just talking about the idea of justice and I law. I think it's an important thing, actually, to clarify. And again, I won't try to go like you said, I won't go off on it too much, but I think it's important to note that one of the things that is happening in the Gospel of John is is trying to create this division. So kind of separate from the angels in America, it's important to me to try to say this to our listeners that there is, it is part of the intention, as as far as we can tell, to create animosity and to create some judgment of these Jewish people who were living according to the way they've been taught to live. And that negative animosity is happening in the Gospel of John in multiple places. And I am not okay with that. And I don't think Jean is either. And so it's an important element of talking about the Bible, at least for me, to say, to make sure to point out that there is an element here that is happening that I do not think is appropriate. And if we're not conscious of it, then we might perpetuate that inappropriate and actually harmful idea that this story is trying to talk about. So that you and I can talk about the other elements, what it is, what's going on. Yes. But that is an important thing for me, um, trying to address anti-Judaic content when we come across it in the Newer Testament. So thank you for that little segment there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to say that out loud, it is really important to acknowledge and to distance ourselves from that. At least be clear about that is happening and that is not a part I want to be perpetuating. Yeah. yeah. And then the flip side of that, yeah. in, a, in a way, if it's, pos if it's possible, the flip of it is part of what I think Kushner is also doing, right? The flip of it is that Jesus is saying, essentially, the human is more important than the law in this case, right? And we have that conversation elsewhere with, you know, the the Sabbath was made for the humans, not the humans for the Sabbath. The, the, the healing a man took precedent over what the traditional or the ritual um, expectation was for that day, and that there's no harm in healing, right? Healing itself um, rules over, you know, adhering to a ritual or a, a you know, a day off or however you want to look at that. And I think that there's an yeah. element there for me in terms of the similarity, right? That the humans, the human bodies, the human experiences that are very real take precedent over what the laws might be missing or not, not, not able to allow for, right? Yeah, that's... Um... That's really well said. And one more thing that I want to say that actually I would like Matt Byrne, our editor, <laughs> to cut out what I said earlier about distancing, mm. and this, because this is what I really want to say, that it's 
really important that we acknowledge the anti-Judaic content and that we reject it. That we we don't throw the entire story out. We still talk about the story. We talk about the story while acknowledging its anti-Judaic elements and we reject those elements. Yes. Um, So let's talk about some of the other elements of the story and then let's link it back to Angels in America. Uh, one thing that I notice, I'm, I'm curious to know what you notice also on this, this time around. Um, one of the things that I notice that I, makes me understand why Kushner evokes it in the play is that there's this idea in the story that the man cannot heal himself alone. I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and people are getting in front of me. He needs help. And I feel like that happens in Angels in America also. No one heals alone. They all need each other. Harper needs Hannah. Even Roy Cohn, you know, this what you might think of as a fairly despicable human <laughs> in the in the yeah. midst of the suffering of his disease of of AIDS. He reaches out for humans. He does. You know, in spite of himself, <laughs> right? Yes. Almost as if he wished he, you know, didn't need to, or this is the human I get. I get, a, you know, a black man, um, a man who represents things that Rory Cohn would like to not acknowledge about himself. And yet that's who's there. And this nurse, Belize, is beyond kind and gracious, really. Yeah. We don't, yeah, we don't yeah. do it alone. Another thing I notice about this section from John is this line, in these lay many ill, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. And you and I were speaking earlier about the messiness of the diseased body, that one of the things that's quintessentially human is that we have these bodies that break down, they get old, and they get sick. And Angels in America explores that very deeply. And I think there are also many places throughout all four Gospels and all of this focus on Jesus as a healer I mean, I think one of the things that all these stories are doing is just reflecting on that particular kind of human brokenness and messiness. Yeah, yep, I think so. And even as you were saying that, Jean, I was reflecting on how, this might sound silly, but even as our bodies heal, that can still seem or be or look messy, right? If you've had a gash, it's your body is doing the thing it needs to do to keep you alive, and it looks nasty, right? Get pus or this whatever, you got the things going on. Bodies are really fascinating to me, actually. Just talked about the the element of disgust that is in some of the Levitical mm. laws and, you know, biblical mm-hmm. laws that I personally like to kind of call out and say, maybe we can get beyond that. Um, but this, you know, all of these pieces of healing and 
and reconciliation. You know, it's life is messy. And we don't yeah. do it alone. Yeah. Well, ahead, I was, we're, we're going to say something else. Tie back into, and um, you and I were talking about this. One of the one of the depictions of the angel. So I'm interested in the fact that in this story in John, it's a, it's an angel. An angel stirs the water for them. Yeah. Right. So an angel makes it possible for the healing to take place. And I think that that is again coming back to your comment. That's a piece of why. Perhaps Kushner works with this myth, this traditional story. And one of the descriptions, so we had at the at the very beginning of this the play, I can't remember if it's Lewis or Pryor. I, it's probably Lewis. He kind of refers kind of offhandedly to the angel that the character Jacob wrestles with. And he um he refers to him in in a very you know, he's blonde hair and gorgeous and blah, blah, blah. You know, not at all what <laughs> what the biblical right. author would have been depicting. And, I'm, you know, and I kind of laugh. I'm like, yeah, that's what people tend to do with this concept of angels. But later on, we get Hannah, who is this Mormon woman who has just discovered that her son is a gay man and is trying to come to terms with it. And she's, you know, been in semi-denial that her daughter-in-law has had, you know, mental challenges, uh, mental health issues that aren't really being addressed very well, or they are, and they're just out of hand. And and she's talking to Pryor, this man who is in the throes of of AIDS. And she says, an angel, an angel is a belief in with wings and arms that can carry you. It's not to be afraid of. And if it can't hold you up, seek for something new. And I just love that. And if, you know, I'm looking at this passage from John and I'm thinking about this, we can't do it alone. And angel, this is a belief, something for transformation or something that can give you something, something hopeful. And how that idea ties in with what the I think the true intention of apocalyptic literature is. I just love that that her description of an angel is one that A, I can get on board with. <laughs> and right. It's, right? Yes. And it's a very I find it a very powerful image and one that is hopeful. And ultimately, back to your opening comments about angels in America. This is an angel for America. This is about something hopeful, but it requires something new. It requires that something change. Think too many pieces of the system are broken or are not working. They are keeping people down. They are oppressing people instead of doing what is just and right. And just a very lovely kind of combination of all these pieces of what Kushner, I think, is trying to suggest for us. I agree. I really love your response to this line. And just to further elaborate on your, the connections that you're making with the play and the idea of the angel of America. Back to the play's concept of heaven, heaven as a multi-ethnic democracy where everyone is included, a fully inclusive 
multi-ethnic democracy. That's a belief. But I think that belief has wings. Uh (laughs) And I think that's a belief we need to hold on to and lift up and celebrate. Celebrate is what I was going to say. Yes. 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 And I think that's that's why this play is using angels, I think. That's my conclusion about that. So, as usual, I have loved Mm, this conversation. Is there anything else you want to add? I think what you've just said is a great is a great comment to wrap up on. Okay. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We know that you have a lot of choices of podcast and a lot of things that you can do with your time. And we're just so glad that you spent some with us. I hope that we kept you good company on your commute or while you're jogging or while you're bike riding or whatever you're doing. Of course, we always want you to be safe. (laughs) We're just... (laughs) I'm thinking I'm the only fool who listens to podcasts while she is bike riding, but I only have one earbud in. I can always hear with the other ear. Oh, You're goodness. So, funny. so, but, you know, we're so, we're just so happy that you are spending some time with us. We really, we appreciate you. And I wanted to let you know that very soon um, we're, we're, we're going to continue the conversation about Angels in America with a scholar called Deborah Holstein. She's a literature scholar, and she, you know, she's done a lot of amazing things. She's been chair of an English department, and she's been a dean, and she's got quite a number of books and lots and lots of articles. I'll tell you more about Deborah when we speak with her. But we're interested in the fact that she served as president of the Oak Park Temple B'nai Abraham Zion Synagogue. She's been the president of a synagogue. She still serves on the board. She's working on a new article about the Hebraic sources of Jesuit rhetoric. There's a mouthful for you. Hebrew sources of Jesuit rhetoric. We'll talk more about that when we talk with Deborah. We thought she'd really be a great person to talk with about her own family's immigration story. Angels of America is about Jewish migration patterns. And also, we'd like to talk with her about the Jacob stories, and she's a big Angels in America fan. So, we thought we would want to get a Jewish scholar on here. So, I hope you look forward to that. And until then, be safe, and we'll talk again soon. Hey, this is Matt Byrne editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes are now on the first and third Fridays of each month. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Have a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. All right, we'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.